Let us now turn to our passage tonight, Mark chapter 15, verse 33 to 41. It's Mark chapter 30, 15, uh, verse 33 to 41. And when the sixth hour hath come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Jose's and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. At the foot of the cross that Friday afternoon was the consummate outsider, a Roman centurion who had a spiritual breakthrough. There were plenty of Jewish people around watching Jesus, two revolutionaries on either side of him, his enemies passing by, standing around, making fun of him, friends off at a distance watching plenty of religious and non-religious Jewish people all around, and none of them had the experience that this Gentile soldier had. He stood there, verse 39, in front of Jesus, opposite him, and he did something that no one here does, certainly not on a regular basis. He had a six-hour quiet time. Six hours of watching how Jesus died, Six hours watching what Jesus was doing while he died. Six hours meditating on it, thinking about what it could mean. Six hours trying to make sense out of what he saw because it just wasn't adding up. He'd seen plenty of people die in horribly gruesome ways. He was battle-hardened. At this point, conscience seared to do the unspeakable things that he did to people. The cruelty that he inflicted in the name of political expediency. He could kill someone, execute them in the most brutal way possible, and then go home. Treat it like just another day at the office, because that's exactly what it was. That's all it was. He'd seen plenty of people die, but no one like this. 
And as he stood there meditating on what he saw, something broke through. He had a spiritual experience. He had, first of all, a flash of spiritual insight that came secondly with transformative power based third on what he saw of Jesus. Three things that are not beyond any one of us tonight. Spiritual insight, life-transforming power that comes from seeing what Jesus was doing. Let's take a closer look first. He had spiritual insight. The whole book of Mark is written with one goal in mind, and that is to show you that Jesus is the Son of God. And so Mark opens the book, chapter 1, verse 1, by writing the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And everything that he shows you after that, from what Jesus says and does to how people respond to him, to what they say about him, everything is for the purpose of showing you that the man Jesus Christ is at the same time the Son of God. That's Mark's purpose. And no one gets it. The Pharisees are annoyed with Jesus, chapter 2, verse 7. They want to know, who is this? Who does he think he is? Telling people he forgives their sins. Disciples have a different attitude, but they have the same question. Chapter 4, 41, Jesus comes to see in the storm, and they ask, who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Who is this? People hearing him teach, seeing his miracles, are astonished in chapter 6, 2, and they want to know, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works by, done by his hands? Who is this guy? <laughs> That's the question that everyone asks throughout the book. Who is this? And for 15 chapters, no one has gotten it right. Not even the disciples. Yeah, they finally figure out that Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed Messiah, the rescuer sent by God. But no one figures out that this anointed human being is also fully God at the same time. No one until he dies. When this desensitized centurion, this battle-hardened, conscience-seared killing machine, suddenly exclaims, truly, this man was the Son of God. I know, he says, I know who he is. It's not a secret anymore. Not all covered up. This man, he's the Son of God. Something broke through to this soldier. Someone who no one in their right mind would expect to have a true spiritual experience. Everything in his background was against it. He was raised in a completely different religious outlook, had not learned about the one true God, was not eagerly waiting for the promised Messiah, not looking to be rescued from sin and death, had no real interest in him. In fact, as a loyal Roman soldier, he'd have had to consciously give his allegiance to a whole different set of gods. He'd have to confess that Caesar was Lord. His career lost my place. His career, his loyalty to the state, and his religion were all tied up together in one big knot. He had worked his way up the ladder in that context, in a soul-numbing profession, and he was good enough at it to have risen through the ranks to where he was now. 
So when this man woke up that morning, no one looking at him would have said, here's a man primed to have a true spiritual experience with the one true God. He had nothing going for him spiritually. Just about the last person on earth that you would expect to have any interest, any connection with God. But out of all the people there, he's the one who walked away seeing the glory of God. The glory that was on display for all the universe to see. Seeing what no one else saw that afternoon. Now what does that tell you? It tells you that if God can reach this man, if this man can have that glimpse into glory, have that spiritual insight, you and I can too. It's open to all of us. It's open to anyone who wants it. We can have it. We should long for it. We should long for this point one, spiritual insight. But point two, that spiritual insight was not simply an interesting idea. It was not a concept. Instead, it came with life-transforming power. Because what the centurion does is radical, given the world that he lived in. Roughly 70 years before this time, in 42 BC, the Roman Senate deified Julius Caesar. They proclaimed that he was a god. The populace had already believed this, and they believed it to such an extent that Julius's adopted son, the guy that we know by the, his title, Augustus, the populace believed it to such an extent that Caesar Augustus was known as the son of the divine Julius, or when you shortened it, he was known as the son of the God. It was a title that was taken really seriously. John Crisan, in his book, God and Empire, Jesus Against Rome, Then and Now, writes this. There was a human being in the first century who was called divine, son of God, God, and God from God, whose titles were Lord, Redeemer, Liberator, and Savior of the world. Crisan goes on. Most Christians probably think that those titles were originally created and uniquely applied to Christ. But before Jesus ever existed, all of those terms belonged to Caesar Augustus. That means when this centurion says, truly, this man was the Son of God, he's doing something that Croissant says would have been understood as high treason. In other words, there might be a whole lot of gods in the pantheon, but there was only one Son of God who ruled on earth. And so the centurion in that moment is not making an interesting observation. Not ste stepping back and having a dispassionate discussion of an interesting new fact. He's not making a neutral observation. And he's not simply breaking with tradition, breaking with the social customs of his society. He's challenging them. Challenging the social order. He's making a political charge. He's saying that this one here, hanging on the cross, that this is the Son of God, and not that one over there, sitting on the throne. Now just think about what he's putting at risk in this moment. At the very least, he's lost his reputation. His loyalty is now suspect. He used to be the company man, the, the insider. But is he still? Can you hear the question around him? Is he still the insider or is his judgment impaired? 
or maybe more to the point, how impaired is it? Clearly, he's not thinking like a good Roman. And if he can make this big a gaffe, if he can be confused about who the Son of God is, what else might he do? Which you realize then jeopardizes his career, along with everything that goes with that. Jeopardizes a decent living, financial security, possibility of retirement. All that's now in jeopardy. Because people might now wonder about his loyalty to the Roman Empire. Wonder if he still believes in the values and the goals of the empire that he's paid to protect and advance. Wonder if he'll still obey orders from his commanding officers. Wonder if the commands that he gives his subordinates are in the best interests of Rome or in the best interests of some new loyalty. All of that's going to have an impact then on how close people want to get to him. How much they want to be associated with him as he's marked by this new loyalty. They might do what? They might isolate him, exclude him, pull away from him, maybe just forget to invite him to what they're doing. Scared that some of the questions now that hang over him might rub off on themselves. He had so much going for him, and he put it all at risk with one sentence. One sentence that he could have kept to himself. He didn't have to say this out loud. Could have just, you know, thought it to himself. But he didn't. He said it out loud. This spiritual insight that this man was the Son of God, this spiritual insight brought with it life-transforming spiritual power that made him willing to identify publicly with this Son of God over that other one. And affirm it out loud. Own it publicly. He said it loud enough in a way that was striking enough that people not only noticed, they remembered. They talked about it, wrote it down. They tied this confession to this soldier for all eternity. He changed allegiances. Exercised real courage. Realigned his entire life around this one person in such a way that it could cost him everything. Everything that he had literally worked his entire life for. Has your loyalty to Christ your commitment to him, your passion for him? Has it cost you anywhere near that much? Does it impact your reputation? Affect the way that people see you? Does it affect your career, slow it down, threaten to derail it? Does it alter how close your neighbors, your co-workers are willing to get to you? Does it change what they invite you to? Do the people around you know that you are totally loyal to Christ? Is it so obvious to them that that's what they remember about you? Is that what they talk about when you're not around? Would they think to write that down about you if they're putting together a history of how you lived your life? That'll only be true if what you find in Jesus is worth more than anything else that you might give up. There's a real cost to what the centurion just said. A cost that you don't take on unless what you see is worth 
so much more than what you already have. And this is written for us so that we realize that we can. We can have the same kind of insight, the same kind of life-transforming power because we can see the same thing that the centurion saw. That's why Mark put it here, to tell us that people who have no background in the faith, who don't have the least interest in Christ, that they can have true spiritual insight, that they can have radical life transformation, that anyone can. And if anyone can, then you and I can. If, point three, we see what the centurion did in the way that he did. See, what's at issue here is not that Jesus died. Centurion had seen lots of people die. What's important, verse 39, is how he died. That's what got the centurion's attention. That's what led him to conclude this man was the Son of God. So what did he see? Well, first he saw intentionality. He saw purposefulness. We didn't read verse 23, but we're told there that Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh. He was offered drugged wine that would dull his pain, and Jesus refused. And you think, who does that? Who wants to be as fully aware as possible during the worst torture that you can imagine? You know where this ends. You end up dead. It's going to be pure agony getting there. Why not make this just a little bit easier? Only someone who has a deeper purpose would refuse to make it easier. Only someone who planned to do more than simply endure, simply endure something terrible, something that's only going to end his life. Only someone who doesn't think of himself as a victim, but someone who thinks of himself as an active agent would refuse to make this any easier. It's the first thing the centurion sees. He sees intention there. He sees intention later as well. Verse 37. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Now you and I might be a little too used to hearing that. It may sound way too familiar to grab our attention, but to the centurion, that combination would not have made any sense. Crucifixion killed a person through a long, drawn-out process of suffocation. By hanging a person by their arms in the vertical position, the person would sink down, and their muscles would lock their lungs into the inhaled state. And so in order to exhale, they'd have to push themselves up pushing their foot up against that nail, ripping through all the rest of the flesh until the bone is pushing up against it, dragging their ripped open back across the rough wood of the cross, pushing themselves up so that their muscles relax just enough that they can exhale, then breathe in and sink down again until they couldn't stand not breathing anymore and go through it all over again again and again and again, until they eventually wore themselves out so that physically they didn't have the strength to push themselves back up one more time. And then they asphyxiate. So when Jesus let out a loud cry, it was clear there's a lot of energy left in his body. He wasn't worn out. 
wasn't physically exhausted so that he had no other choice but to die. That caught the centurion's attention. So when Jesus breathed his last, we realized that what he said in John 10, 18 was true, that no one takes his life from him, but that he lays it down of his own accord. Centurion watched that, saw that Jesus was not passively experiencing something, but actively doing something, that he had a purpose, and that he was doing it very intentionally. What else did he see? He saw that this purpose involved a supernatural element, verse 33. From the sixth hour to the ninth, from noon till three in the afternoon, darkness covered the land. And it's a darkness that had no natural explanation. It couldn't be from an eclipse because solar eclipses aren't possible when the moon is full, which is always when Passover is celebrated. Other people have suggested, well, maybe a desert dust storm rolled in, which also isn't possible because this is the wet season. There's no natural explanation for why darkness should descend on the land for three hours in the middle of the day. Something supernatural is taking place here. Something that, if you know Scripture, makes sense, but something that's absolutely terrifying. Amos 8, 9 talks about a day of judgment when God says, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And so you realize that the darkness that you see that Friday afternoon tells you judgment is here. Or you could go back even earlier in Scripture and recognize that. God judges Egypt for refusing to let his people go. And the ninth plague that he sends is darkness. And it's a thick darkness that you could feel. One that was so intense that no one moved from where they were for three days. And it was immediately after the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, that God sent the angel of death to kill all the firstborn throughout the land. And he didn't just send the angel over the land of Egypt, but he also sent it over the place where the Israelites were living. Because before God, there is no real difference in terms of real guilt when God's judgment comes. The Egyptians might have done more wrong, been more unjust, but no one living in that land was guiltless. There was no one righteous, not one person. Everyone had turned away from God. Everyone had forfeited their life. And yet, yet, if you read that account in Exodus, you learn that not everyone was killed, that there was a way to escape death. There was a miraculous gracious way that God offered. You could escape death if you had a substitute, a lamb killed whose blood you put on the doorposts of your house. If you had that blood, it would protect you from the angel of death. It would turn the angel of death away so that he passed over your home as you took refuge under the blood of the lamb. If you had a Passover lamb and trusted what God said, then that lamb's death would be enough to spare your firstborn from dying. When Jesus hung on the cross, in rolled the darkness, the judgment of God. And the only thing standing between that judgment and the death that came right behind it 
was the Passover lamb. The one nailed to the cross who took on himself the death of every one of his people that they owed. That one was killed instead of them. He was shut out of God's presence so that they could live and still be the people of God. Now, did the centurion understand all of that? Probably not. But he'd have known enough to realize that this wasn't normal, not natural, that something supernatural was taking, was taking place, and that this one who was intentional about what he was doing was involved in something supernatural. Soldier would have been able to put that together, and he'd have been familiar with a sense of darkness, a sense of God's absence, with feeling alienated from God, cut off from God after everything that he had done, a feeling that Jesus was clearly not familiar with. Jesus cried out, verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here again, as the centurion is watching, he sees something that just doesn't add up. This man on the cross is not ignoring God. He's not pretending that God's uninvolved. But he's not blaming God for where he is. He's not following the counsel of Job's wife to curse God and die. He's also not pleading with God to get him out of there. Even to make it end quicker. He wants something. Even more than he wants this all to end. He's crying out for something that he doesn't have, but something that he's used to having. He wants God. Wants his presence. Wants his closeness. Wants intimacy. Wants back what he's used to having. This darkness has something to do with God's absence. Centurion may not have understood that it was God's judgment. He could not miss that it was connected to God's absence. To the absence of everything that is good and healthy. The absence of everything that we human beings need in order to live and to live well. That darkness held none of that goodness. And that was something that he'd been all too familiar with. Something that was just life as usual for him. But the absence of God was worse to Jesus than the physical pain and suffering he was going through. He cared more about the absence of God than he cared about anything else. Centurion saw that there's something worse than death, worse than this horrible, inhumane death, something that he himself had tasted as an appetizer throughout his life, little bits of darkness, little bits of ab absence of God, not like this. Not as the main course that Jesus was just gulping down. And then as the centurion watched, standing there at the foot of the cross, this man, Jesus, breathed his last. And verse 38, the temple curtain was torn in two. The temple that had guarded access to God was no longer there. No longer a barrier to getting to God. The way to God was now open. And now somehow the temple that had always been the way, the means to get into God's presence, it no longer was. Now that this very intentional person engaging with supernatural darkness, 
experiencing the absence of God was obviously done doing what he came to do. And the torn curtain helps us see even more clearly who it was that was on the cross. Because the curtain is torn starting from the top and continuing on down to the bottom. It shows you who's opening the way. That the way is being opened from heaven to earth, from God to us. That's not the result of human agency, not the work of a mere human being. It's God himself who opened that door to himself. And that it came about by the work of this very intentional man who's more than a man who had been abandoned by God in the darkness. And the gift of God to this centurion was that the soldier got to stand there meditating on all of this for six hours, seeing how this one died, puzzling through it, putting things together, realizing that the absence of God and the presence of darkness go together, realizing that he had more experience with God's absence than with his presence, realizing that Jesus was not used to God's absence, but that living in his presence was normal for him and that it was of supreme importance to him, far more valuable than anything he could have on earth. Realizing that all the events go together, that if the darkness is now, is now gone and the curtain is torn and Jesus let his life go, then it's Jesus who had something to do with dispelling that darkness and opening the way permanently to God. And the dawning awareness had to break on him at some point that if Jesus, who is also God, if he already had that kind of access to God for himself, then he didn't tear that curtain for his own benefit. That he didn't stay there on the cross for himself. That he, he used his power to open up access that he didn't need, which means what? He did that not for himself, he did that for others. And if the Jewish temple is no longer needed, if you don't need to be a certain special ethnicity to enter into God's presence, but if the doorway is now open to anyone, then Jesus did all of that. Can you, can you feel the growing awareness? Jesus did all of that for me. For me. Everything I just witnessed for the past six hours was personal. That God wants me to see and know all this because why? He wants me. It's not just what the centurion saw that was important. It's what it had to mean. That someone who was on the closest, most intimate terms with God battled through supernatural darkness until it was gone to open access to God, doing what no one else could do unless he was God himself so that what? So that now I can come near to God. That's what transforms this man. What do all the other things in my life matter if I can now have him? And if I can have the God that he thought was more valuable than anything he had on earth, what can my society do to me 
fire me, ostracize me, ridicule me. What's it really matter if I can have him? If I can have him, the Son of God, and with him, the God who's better than life itself. And so the man publicly confesses, unafraid of who might hear, he publicly confesses truly, this man was the Son of God. So why don't you and I, why don't we have that same kind of conviction, that same lack of concern with whoever hears us, that same passion? It's because we refuse to do what the centurion did. We refuse to meditate on Jesus and on what he did in his life, his death, and his resurrection. We're too busy, too caught up in other things, too absorbed by other things. We find other things more interesting, more distracting. And then we wonder why we have so little spiritual power and why we care so much about our reputations, about being included, about investing in our careers. We care so much more about those things than we care about passionately meeting with Christ. And so we look instead for quick spiritual fixes when what we really need is prolonged time at the feet of Jesus, standing below the feet of Jesus while he hangs on the cross. Chase the American dream for yourself. Chase it so that you can give it to your family. And you will not have this kind of insight. You won't have this kind of life-transforming power. You won't because you can't. I can't. But stand there at the foot of the cross with your gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. And God will give you the same insights and the same power that he offers to anyone, regardless of your background, regardless of what you've done. Meditate on Christ, on what you see him doing there. Meditate on what he accomplished. Meditate until it becomes personal. Not, this is what he's done, but this is what he's done for me. Let me give you a few moments now to do some meditating. We're going to prepare to receive communion. We're not going to take six hours. Probably going to take a lot less, frankly, than you and I need. But take a moment. Maybe it's the first time today. Maybe it's the first time this week. But see again how Jesus died. And ask him to make it personal to show you that he died for you.
Lord Jesus, you demonstrated clearly who you are. And Lord, it is to our shame that we don't dedicate ourselves to understanding and knowing what you thought was so important. And yet, Lord, we come tonight knowing that what you did on the cross pays even for that. Pays for our hard-heartedness, pays for our laziness. And so, Lord, we look tonight with gratitude in our hearts. We look knowing that you have a lot more work to do in every single one of us, that we are not yet where you would take us. Lord, some of us are starting to just begin to have spiritual insights. Others of us maybe more, but nothing near as much as what you wish to show. Lord, do more in us. Energize our hearts to want that from you. And thank you, Lord, that we can pray that with confidence because of what you did on the cross and because of your sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name, amen. When Jesus